I'm Michelle Sims, and this is The Beauty in the Mess, a community where people who crave a shift in mindset, personal growth, and connection to like-minded people come together to start rewriting their stories. Through engaging, honest, and insightful conversations, the show will help you embrace the mess to recognize the meanings and the lessons it holds and discover its hidden treasures to help you start making a mindset shift. Let's listen, learn, and reclaim who we were meant to be. Hi, friend. Welcome to episode five of The Beauty in the Mess, called From Harmed to Harmless, Melanie DeQuisto's Life Journey. I'm Michelle, your host. My special guest today, Melanie, is a certified addictions registered nurse. She's a mom of two, and she's also a survivor of abuse and is in long-term recovery after battling addiction. Her addiction ended up having a root cause of feeling like she wasn't good enough or was unworthy of love. She has since found her worth and unconditional love in her relationship with God. She now uses her experiences, her pain, and God to help her help others on their paths. She is currently working with people with substance use disorders using a harm reduction approach, which is something new to a lot of us. It allows her to meet people where they are on their path and help them stay as safe as possible. In my conversation with Melanie today, we will be discussing her own personal journey of abuse, addiction, her recovery, and her newfound purpose in life. Please know that 20% of nurses struggle with addiction to drugs or alcohol as of the 2019 Bedrock Recovery Center abuse statistics. And at this point, I'd also like to issue a trigger warning for today's episode as we will be touching briefly on suicide or suicidal thoughts during our discussion If this may trigger extreme emotional distress for you, you should probably skip today's episode. And with that being said, if you or someone you know is contemplating suicide, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is available 24 hours a day at 1-800-273-8255. And with that, my friend, we're going to dive right in. Melanie, thank you for joining us today on The Beauty and the Mess, and we're excited to hear your story. I don't know if you want to take us back to the time when when all of this started for you. I know you've had some emotional trauma growing up and it led to substance abuse later on in life. But would you want to take us back to that? Thanks for having me, by the way. This is a real honor to uh, be a guest. So it probably started from birth. Actually, I was um, born into an unhappy marriage. My mom actually wanted to have an abortion and it was right about that time where it wasn't, I'm not sure if it wasn't quite legal or wasn't socially acceptable. It was in 1973, Wow. Uh, 1972 and 73. So I was born into an unhappy marriage. My father was abusive. He died when I was three and my mother remarried. She remarried a man who was wonderful to her, but he was mentally ill. And now what we know about that is he had what's called bipolar disorder. Back then they called it manic depressive disorder, but he just was a very, very sick man mentally. It was a very abusive, very abusive household. And that led to early substance use for me my brother as well, but I was drinking daily by the time I was 16 and I just really wanted to escape. I can remember wanting to escape from the earliest part of my childhood that I can remember. And I would do that early on by reading books. I could just completely check out of reality by 
reading and looking back, that was a sign. Now I get to enjoy, enjoy reading again. So I was drinking daily from the time I was 16. And it was such an incredibly abusive time that Department of Children's Services were contacted many times. And the culture back then and society, it just didn't, it wasn't as supportive as it is now with helping kids. And they would send me right back to my parents' home. And so I just made this decision that I was going to get in as much trouble as I possibly could and cause as much of a a ruckus as I possibly could. And my goal at that time, and this may seem counterintuitive, was to get to the Indiana Girls School. So that's basically the Department of Corrections for Juveniles. I just knew that they would keep me until I was 18. And that's what I wanted because I, I had no extended family support. There was nowhere for me to go. I didn't, you know, have that kind of family where I could go live with an aunt or uncle. Did your mom talk to you? I mean, did you ever, could you go to her at all? Did she acknowledge the abuse or did she just act like it wasn't happening or? We didn't talk about it. In fact, I can remember a few times where he would just beat me. And she would get in the middle of it and break it up and turn to me and say, how could you, how could you do this? And I guess what she was referring to was maybe the couple of times where I would have kind of a tone. He was a very sick man. And I think she saw him as a sick man and she didn't see me as a child, you know, in that role. Do you think she was aware that you were drinking at 16 or did she not yeah, she care? Knew. She knew. Wow. She knew she hid it from my stepdad because I think she didn't want those problems to happen. She didn't want those events of abuse, those, those things to happen. But, you know, I couldn't stop it. And I went to treatment for the first time when I was 16. I had an awful suicide attempt. I you know, confessed at that time about my substance use. And so they, uh, I went inpatient for 30 days at a local place for children. And that's when I met the lady who would change my life. So part of my treatment plan per se, I later identified was that when I would have these meltdowns, while in the hospital, then their way of handling that was to ignore me, just to not pay attention to it, just ignore me. And she was the one that didn't. She sat down with me and she talked to me and she listened. It was that moment. Her name was Michelle. She was an African-American lady and I will never forget her. So it's been 33 years. I still never forgotten her. And it was that moment I decided that I was going to be a nurse because just having somebody who listened, I don't remember any epic advice or anything like that. I just remembered that she listened to me. That's when I decided I wanted to become a nurse. Well, you know, what I'm hearing you tell me is that you're a teenager, you're 16. You're going in for substance abuse. 
treatment. And surely they had to find out that you were being abused at home or, or did they not dig that deep? And, and, you know, to me, if you have a child that's trying to commit suicide and you find out there's abuse, it looks like you would remove them from the, the home immediately. That, that never happened, I take it. So did they find out you were being abused or did they not dig that deep? Or I told them. Um, you told now, them? Okay. Yeah. This was in the 1980s. Right. There were so many investigations and they were all found unsubstantiated by the Department of Children's Services. Wow. I had neighbors who witnessed bruising and just a, a lot of things. And there were a lot of investigations and all found unsubstantiated. Part of the time that was because these reports would be made and the, um, caseworker would come to my school to talk to me, of course, outside of my home, but they had, they would have already told my parents, look, this is what is being said. And then they would threaten me. Like my dad, my stepdad would threaten me. I was just wondering if that didn't escalate everything because now they know you're telling people, right? Oh yes, it did. (laughs) It did. What goes on in the home stays in the home. And that's the way I grew up. And that's the way they grew up to them looking back, especially with some of the mistakes I've made with my own children. I can see now where what I thought was normal and not abuse was. And so I can only, you know, I can only gather that they didn't see it as abuse. They saw it as normal behavior because it occurred in their home. While I didn't repeat the things that my parents did, there are other ways to abuse children and that I didn't know were abusive. Right. It's all you'd known. I mean, prior to the substance abuse, looking back, is there, you know, as I'm wondering for teenagers right now, is there anything anyone could have done, do you think, that other than to get you out of the house, I guess, that would have helped you not form a substance abuse problem or I'm just wondering if there's any way to intervene for for young people today before it happens. definitely is today uh, I think that we know a lot more about substance use now than what we did before I can tell you there were a lot of time I would go to school you know intoxicated oh, and, wow. and I would sleep all day at school I was never like pulled into the office and asked what was going on or, and that just would not happen nowadays. You know, I, 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 I certainly hope it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I think that people just tended to mind their business, quote unquote, and to not get involved. Unfortunately, doing that almost cost me my life. Yeah. It's amazing how many people let you down you know, along the way, all of these caregivers and people that should have stepped in and didn't. It's really sad. I remember telling my history teacher that I was going to run away and they would not be able to stop me and nothing. Wow. No response at all. She heard me. She advised me not to do that, but there were, there was no alert. She knew what was going on in my home. And I don't know if they just thought maybe I wasn't being honest. 
or what, but there nothing happened. Again, this was in the nineteen eighties. It's right. much different now. And that's true. But it's just amazing that you openly told people and they still didn't respond. It's just yeah. shocking, really. Even for the eighties, I mean you think someone stepped if, in. If something did happen, you know, behind the scenes, I didn't know about it. Right. It could have got squashed behind the scenes or something. It could have been. But it doesn't sound like they stepped up. Yeah. <laughs> so I I heard you say that this nurse, Michelle, just listened, mm-hmm. something that simple, and it changed the route of your life, right? It changed your path. It so did. do you want to tell us what happened from there? I sure do. So that was when I was 16. Pretty much like a couple of months after that hospitalization, I continued to use substances and I continued to run away. Nothing had changed about my circumstances because I wasn't the core issue. The core issue was not me. So there was no way for me to get help. Even 30 days in the hospital did not change my insecure and unsafe home. So I continued to use and I continued to run away. And I still had a goal of getting to the Indiana Girls School where I, in my mind, they were going to keep me until I was 18 and then I would be free. Anything was better than what I was living in. And eventually, within a couple of months after that hospitalization, I became a ward of the court. And so I went to, uh, I actually fought my parents in court for the right to stay at my high school. There was a girl's home in within my high school district. They wanted me to go to this place far away. And I wanted to graduate from my high school. I did not want to go to that place. And I already knew some of the girls that were there because I went to school with them. And so I fought and I won. What was their reasoning to send you far away just to get you away? They wanted me far away from from them. I, I Maybe them, maybe the people I was hanging out with. I, I don't oh. know what their thinking was. They had spent quite a bit of time meeting with these people at that. It was called the Soldiers and Sailors Home. I don't know what it is now, but they had spent a lot of time preparing that. And I just wanted to graduate from my school where I knew everybody. And I had gone since kindergarten. And I won. And I went to, it was called the Friendship Home. I'm not sure if it's that now. And I was there for, well, I eventually made it to the Friendship Home. I was in a residential setting for four months. And then I went to the long-term facility. And I was there until my 18th birthday at midnight. So was it better than being with your parents in hindsight? Oh, yes. Okay. I I didn't know what it's like. So yes, I was free. Right. I was free, but I still had a substance use problem. I continued. Well, I I can't remember how long I was sober before I started using again. I remember I would still sneak out. I snuck out of so many times. I snuck out of the temporary housing place. It was called shelter care. A res- is a short-term residential program. 
I snuck out of there and was drinking. I don't think I really had any kind of sobriety during that time because I would leave and run and drink and use. Um, I had a significant problem for being as young as I was. So that my goal was to numb. And during that time, we had visitation and a lot of the girls were going back to their homes and their parents would come and they would visit and they would attend family sessions and with the goal to reunite the family. And that wasn't the treatment plan. And so I I didn't have visitors. My disposition was going to be different than theirs. And I just continued to run. And I spent a lot of years doing that, even after I turned 18. So did anyone at the girls' home realize that you were still abusing substances or did they? I don't They They caught me sneaking out once. But you don't think they were really aware of what you were doing? So. Wow. I'm not sure. I, I imagine that. I just don't remember, honestly, right. if it was that obvious that or if they even paid attention I don't know in that time that particular facility there was a house parent per se but they just kind of stayed in the office and kind of did our own thing oh wow at least that's the way I remember it now we're talking about a lot of trauma so I may be remembering it incorrectly but I understand um, yeah that's the way I remember it so with a major substance abuse problem, now you're 18, you get released, I assume? Yes. I so got where released. do you go from there? What do you do at 18 yeah, on your was, own? I was so excited. I was so excited because I finally got to do life on my own terms. But again, I, <laughs> I wasn't doing very well with that. So um, I left at midnight. I had worked. I had gotten a job and worked and saved money and I got my own apartment and I had everything ready to go. So all I needed was a ride at midnight to my apartment. I did spend like the last three months of of being in that girl's home preparing for this. It, It wasn't like, well, you're gone. Get out. It wasn't that at all. They had a transition program, I believe is what it was called. So I had furniture. I had bought and used furniture and I had an apartment. And oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah. So I was able to make all those, make that happen. I didn't have a car or a license, but eventually that sorted itself out. I didn't mind walking where I needed to go because I could. Right. You're free. <laughs> I was free. Um, I had no idea how to do adult life, though. I was clueless. My boyfriend, I was living with him and his parents kind of helped, you know, you've got to pay your gas bill and you've got to do this. And they kind of showed me a lot of things. But uh, what I wanted to do was party because I'm free and I'm still celebrating. And that's how I viewed it. And I drank every day for years and used other substances as well. But at that time, it was mostly alcohol. And eventually, That was a a very abusive relationship that I was in at that time. And he also had a substance use problem. And there's just a really high prevalence of intimate partner violence in relationships with where substance use is an issue. And he was 
very abusive and looking, I was probably abusive as well. I, I was for sure angry and drunk a lot. So, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but coming from an abusive childhood, you know, I've read up on it myself, but, you know, abused people tend to end up in abusive relationships a lot of the time because it's familiar, right? Is it? Yes, it was familiar. And I was in, I was addicted also to the cycle because I knew after he beat me up, then that honeymoon phase was coming where he was the man that I fell in love with again. And it was wonderful and beautiful and it didn't last very long, but I knew it was coming. So I almost invited it when that cycle was happening. I ended up getting pregnant with my son when I was 21 and I decided, you know, I had no idea what to do. I didn't really have a role model, but, you know, for parenting, nor did I have a relationship with my parents at all anymore. I didn't talk to them for many years. So I got pregnant and I decided I don't want to repeat the same mistakes that my parents made. And I sought out parenting classes. I remember doing this when I was pregnant. And these are the parenting classes for people who were trying to get their kids back, like through Department of Children's Services. And those were the kinds of, so I was in classes. um, I sought them out myself. I went once a week for 12 weeks at a church that is just down the road from where I live now. And I tried, I, I really tried. I think I learned a lot, but I think mostly it was triggering also for myself to hear the stories, you know, these, the parents that were in these classes with me, the things that their kids were going through, but I finished the class and we had a whole graduation and everything And by the time I finished that class, I was about five, six months pregnant. And then I enrolled in school and I, I, I knew that I couldn't raise a child on, I was a CNA, which is a certified nursing assistant. And I knew I couldn't raise a child on that wage at that time. We only made about $8 an hour. So I knew that I had to go back to school and in having a child, I was eligible for Pell Grants and housing. Like now I could, this sounds silly maybe, but now I could get like food stamps and housing assistance and all those things. And so I fully utilized every resource I had and I went back to school and I graduated um, when my son was about a year old as a nurse. Wow. As a, so was your boyfriend still involved at this point? No. 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 Did his parents... He was in prison by that point. Oh, wow. Yeah. Did his parents take a, any kind of active role with, the, with your son at all or no? No, they never wow. did. They never, and I mean, never did. <laughs> wow. Yeah, he's 27 now so. and they, they didn't. So moving forward, I... In another relationship where I was abused, not as, not physically. So I guess in my mind, I kind of minimized what was going on because at least he didn't beat me up. 
that there was a lot of mental abuse and in a different relationship that was, and it was just awful and toxic. And I was with him for several years and we had a daughter together. And when I got pregnant for my daughter, there's three and a half, four years between my son and my daughter. So when I had my daughter, I went back to school. When I got pregnant, I signed up for school again because I had a nursing degree, but I knew if I went back to school for this one year program that I could have a a better degree and then I would make more money. And so I went back to school and I did that. All this time I am using though. I'm using, I'm drinking and I'm in abusive relationships. I had forgiven my parents and I thought that that was enough. I thought that forgiving them and just moving on you know, just trudging, you know, just moving on. I thought that that was enough and that the trauma hadn't affected me anymore. But I've learned that that is not the case. I had signed up for therapy numerous times. I just didn't make it a priority. And I thought, I'm fine. This isn't affecting me. I'm a different parent than they were. And that's not affecting me. You mean the so, substance abuse isn't affecting you? Is that what you were telling? Well, it was, but I wasn't I mean, even what... ready to deal with that right. at the time. Right. I was the trauma of of the abusive um, childhood is what I mean. Okay. So there was just a lot of rejection as well. My parents didn't want to reconcile with me after all of oh. all of that. And I wanted to reconcile with them. I I didn't like being alone on the holidays. I wanted my kids to know their grandparents. You know, I I wanted that family and they didn't want that. So it was, um, it was, a there was a lot of rejection, a lot of rejection. And I know a bit more about that now, that time for them. And I do not hold that against them. Uh, what I thought was going on, what I thought was they, my mom didn't love me. She didn't want anything to do with me and that she blamed me for all of these struggles. And that's what was going on in my mind because they just wanted nothing to do with me. But I found out a bit more about that right before she died and in cleaning out her house after she died. I now kind of have a better understanding of why there was a distance. That's good. Yeah. A little bit of resolution, I guess. Yes. It was a major for me anyway. So I continued to use and to drink. And even while being a parent, even while being a nurse, all of these things, I also had a chronic pain condition that required um, pain medication and and numerous surgeries, I became addicted to opiate pain medication. So that's very dangerous when you're a nurse because I had unlimited access to that kind of um, medication. And I can almost remember the day that I was no longer able to take my prescribed medicine the way it was prescribed. I had always taken it the way it was prescribed 
And suddenly I couldn't anymore. And I would be horrifically sick if I didn't have it because of, you know, the way opiates work in your system. And I not only sick, but I just couldn't stand life without it. I couldn't stand my job. I couldn't, I didn't feel like I could do my job without the substances. So I started taking them from work and that just escalated very quickly, very quickly to the point where I was doing the most ridiculous things to get the pain medication from my job that I was almost relieved when I was caught, relieved in that I didn't have to try to hide and cover up and think of ways and do all this, you know, what is actually survival when you're in active addiction. I didn't have to do that anymore, but I lost my job and I had to go into this monitoring program for nurses and I was able to stay sober for about 18 months at that time because I was doing weekly drug screenings. Um, I was accountable to my employer. I got a job like three weeks after I lost that one. And um, it wasn't the same kind of job. I had very little access to uh, narcotics. And it was kind of, it was one of the conditions of me continuing to work as a nurse is that I had no access for a certain amount of time. And so I went back to work as a nurse eventually uh, because I had been in intensive care and in critical care nursing for so long. When I was no longer in it, I felt kind of empty, honestly, that this is it had taken over my identity. Being a nurse, being a critical care nurse had taken over my identity. And it it was probably the only thing I thought that I was good at. And um, I, you know, derived my self-esteem from that. So eventually, because I was so bored and just didn't feel good about being in other nursing roles. I went back to the hospital and it was probably a year that I was, I think it was a year. That may not be accurate, but eventually I started diverting narcotics again. And this time when I got caught, I uh, became a felon and I went to jail and I lost my license to practice nursing and I had to get a different kind of job after being a nurse for 20 years. And I just, it was a big shift. And I, at that point I could not stop my using because I had in, in my mind, this is what was going on in my mind. I had ruined my life, ruined my kids' lives. And I had so much shame about, doing all of this, it's very taboo to have a substance use disorder as a nurse. It is very taboo. And to do the things that I had done to get what in that moment I needed. Uh, There's just a lot of shame around it. And I didn't know how to work through it because I didn't really know how to trust anybody to help me work through it. I always thought that people were looking at me this, the way I was viewing myself. That's 
kind of where I was and how everything fell apart. So did they um, allow you to keep your job if you went back into a monitoring program again? As So I just walked away from nursing completely. Oh, wow. I thought I can't face the board. I cannot face what I've done. I can't. I didn't even show up for my hearing. I, I don't know that they wouldn't have allowed me to re-enter monitoring and try again. They may have. I didn't even show up. I was in a fog of using not just opiates, but I got into some pretty heavy drugs and it was a wild ride. After you've done the jail time, are you still abusing substances at this point? Yes. So how were you getting them without the nurse's job? On the street because I had met people in in treatment. Oh, wow. Yeah, I met people in treatment and made friends and I was getting them through the people that I had met in treatment. It was just a really wild time. And my kids were like, my daughter was, I believe, 12 ish. And uh, my son was, was 15, 16. And they were starting to have suffer a lot of consequences from what I was, you know, the same things, basic underlying issues was an unsafe home because mom is using and she also has this relationship with this abusive man and we're not stable because we can't pay our rent anymore. And my car was repossessed and I had lost my, you know, had to foreclose on my home and all of these consequences happened and I'm no longer a nurse anymore. I'm now a barista making coffee and packing donuts in a box for the administrators of the job that I used to work at when they would have their meeting, you know, their monthly meetings, they would come in and get coffee and donuts. And I would, I would be there working at the cash register and they'd just be floored. Wow. So So your identity also is who you knew yourself to be that nurse and critical care. I mean, that's taken away too. Yeah. Everything was gone. Yeah. Everything. And that felt awful. And there were a lot of emotional and mental consequences with that. And I thank God for those times now, because what happened when I finally did get to the end of myself, I could not do another conversation with my daughter where she hated me. And I could not do another conversation with my son blaming me and everything that that entailed and what that felt like. And I knew I had to get it together or I was going to commit suicide. And I had a plan. I I had a plan for the way that I was going to do it. And I had this huge bottle of pills and I knew from working in critical care that, you know, while a lot of different substances that you would or medications that you would take may not necessarily kill you. I knew this one would. I, and I thought my, my kids would just be a lot better off without me. And maybe they could get a good home. You know, maybe they could be free the way I felt free when I made it to that girl's home. And I thought this is the only way that they're going to make it. But I just couldn't do it. I couldn't figure out the right time to do it because I didn't want my daughter to find me, you know? Right. And I didn't want my son to find me. 
And I didn't want my then husband to stop me. So I just was torn about what to do. And so this is the most epic part of the whole story, actually. I just remember being like curled up in a ball on my floor in my bedroom with his bottle of pills and praying, just really mad at God because I had tried to get sober so many times and I just kept going back. And I wanted to know why he was doing it for other people and he didn't do it for me. But I believe timing is everything, you know? Absolutely. When it is your time, it is your time. And I said out loud, I know you can do this. I've seen you do it in other people. Why won't you do that for me? And that was um, March 18th, 2012. That's my sobriety date. Wow. He took it from me. So did you feel it in that moment? Or did you hear, you know, like a voice in your head or nothing? No, I just felt moved to get up off the floor, to get up off the floor and to make some phone calls of people that I knew were still in recovery and get to a meeting and reunite with that recovery family that I had had, that I had met in those times when I had been sober before those short times. and. (laughs) That was a doozy. I didn't consider going back into nursing for quite some time. I was sober for, for, let's see, a year before I even thought about it. And I had a sponsor or a, a mentor in my recovery program. And she worked in the healthcare field as well. I actually had worked with her a little bit. And her husband, who was also in the healthcare profession, I had worked with them a little bit. And she was like, you were such an amazing nurse. Why don't you go back? And I just, I can't, I can't face the board. I can't face all of this. There were so many hurdles to overcome to get back to nursing. And I thought about it for a year. You know, she kept telling me this and over and over and I thought no no my time is done with that and finally after doing quite a bit of work and just experiencing a lot of grace um I thought well maybe and she really supported me in that and she helped me maneuver all the you know the nursing board and and figure things out. And she kind of knew. Is anyone allowed to be there with you when you are before the board? I mean, just a support. Okay. Yeah. At that time. Yes. I don't know what they do now because of COVID, but they, at that time they, yes. I re-entered monitoring first of all, and that was extremely expensive because there, it was all paid for by me and I didn't have health insurance or anything like that. So but it, I made it happen with me and God. We made it happen. Amazing. And I also had this felony, you know, so I didn't know what to do with that. But uh, I was able to get it expunged. I had prayed about, God, if you just make a way for me to get back to nursing, I promise I will 
dedicate my career to people experiencing substance use disorder and addiction. I had never wanted to work in a behavioral health setting before. In fact, that was the furthest thing from what I wanted to do ever in my career before. But I knew if I was going to get back there, I was going to use this situation, which had created such a compassion in me for hurting people, not just people with substance use disorder, but people with suicide thoughts, all of these things, this mental anguish, just hurting, hurting people. I wanted to use all of that new compassion that I had to help, you know, in some way. Exactly. That's wonderful. So I did. And I continue to do so. And I uh, actually worked at Chrysler for about three and a half years. I left my job as a barista and I was able to um, get a job at Chrysler during one of their major hiring events, like 2014, I believe. And I worked there for about three years and I used all of my profit sharing, all of my bonuses. That's how I paid for all of this to happen. And it did. And I was able to leave there. You know, I was not passionate about building transmissions. I did not want to do that. So (laughs) I was able to leave there. And it was scary. Excellent benefits, all of these things. And it was so scary to think I'm leaving this place where I've become comfortable and I've made a little family there, you know, and, and going back into a career where if I relapse, I'm done. And it was scary, but I trusted God with that as well. And I knew he wouldn't have made this way for me. Right. To leave. So I left that job and that was very hard to do, but I did it. And I got a job in a uh, drug treatment facility. I stayed at that particular facility for a couple of years. And then I uh, moved into the job where I still am. And I've been for the last five years. And I've kind of worked my way up in that. Now, having spent the last seven years working with people with addictions, I can say that a lot has changed about my views. I naively thought that people going to treatment really, really, really were dedicated to getting and staying sober. And the reality is that's just not the case. Maybe they want to, maybe they're trying to satisfy, you know, some requirement for their family or DCS or something like that. But a lot of the times, and the addictionologist that I work with actually told me that only 10% of the people who leave our facility will stay sober for a long term. And that just stuck with me. And I thought, well, how do we help the 90% then? And then I spent a lot of time doing research and, and trying to figure out ways that we can help the 90%, the ones who wouldn't stay sober, the ones who would continue to harm themselves and, and be hurt and stigmatized and not heard and not seen by not just society, but healthcare workers as well. So I found a thing called harm reduction, which has been, I didn't know much about it, but it had been, yes, like a 
a principle of treating people who use drugs actively and people with substance use disorders who don't want to use anymore. And it's just the most compassionate, Christ-like approach to caring for a highly marginalized and stigmatized patient population. And this is what feels right to me. And that is harm reduction is like a, a principle where you meet people where they are, whether they're using or whether they aren't. And you equip them with supplies and love to reduce their harms, you know, to prevent hepatitis and to prevent overdose and these things that seem to just run rampant in substance use disorder patients. So that's where I'm at now with my career. I've been able to implement a few things, my current employer, ways I can help, but really it's a mindset. So do you see, like you said, 90% out of traditional therapy might go back to using substances Mm -hmm. again, but with this harm reduction, do you see more people becoming sober or is it just keeping them safer? What I focus on is, is keeping them safer seeing who they are as a person and it builds relationships. Right. And research says that people who use drugs and utilize harm reduction programs are five times more likely to reach out for help. That's huge. They're five times more likely to ask for help. And I believe that is because of the relationships we form with them. Right. And they're being seen and they're being heard and being seen. They're being being shown care. Kind of was by Michelle at age 16. Right. I don't remember what our conversation was like, but it's been 33 years and I still remember her. Yeah. She changed the path of your life. She did. And that is my goal. That is my goal. So do you feel like being in recovery yourself? I mean, long-term recovery, but. Do you feel like this puts you at risk being around substance abuse users all the time? Or does it make you think, I know I never want to be back in that place. So it kind of fortifies where you're at in your life. So I don't feel at risk. I don't at all. And people bring in drugs, you know, that, that happens. We usually find them. Sometimes we don't, but people bring in drugs. Well, first of all, drugs nowadays are a lot more dangerous So it is not, I don't want to die anymore. And I know that's what would happen if I used some of the things that come into our facility. Wow. So um, I don't feel tempted in any way. No, I don't usually work the floor anymore, though. I'm in more of a leadership role now and like a nursing education role as well. Right. Um, in, In a certain part of my job, I am not the whole thing, but I do provide quite a bit of education to nurses, but i never feel tempted to utilize the substances that come into our facility. It is, it is 100% for sure death for me. I know that it doesn't even cross my mind. So that's great. So looking back, what do you think the biggest gift you got out of this besides, Mm. I know you said compassion for others going through the same thing or even something somewhat similar, right? So is that the biggest gift or are there other gifts? The biggest gift is the compassion for sure. 
while compassion is the gift, my story is my gift to others. And so I just want to inspire hope. You know, I just want to, I just want to show people, listen, if I told you where I was 10 years ago, you wouldn't believe me. That's how much my life has changed. And this is why it has changed. That is the biggest gift. The gift to me is what I'm able to give. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, So the compassion and my story and just watching somebody's face light up, somebody with substance use disorder, when you treat them just like a human being, it's sad and it's beautiful all at the same time because they've never experienced the level of compassion, some of them anyway, like they experience when I sit down and talk to them. Or my coworkers, my colleagues, they, they're also very compassionate people. While they don't all have their own story to share, they're just the most compassionate people. That's why I drive an hour to go to work every day, you know, every day that I work is because I, I, I have to work there. <laughs> do you, <laughs> do you feel people. like on this journey that you also found like self-love or self-forgiveness? That is the journey. That, do you feel that, like you're still on I, the journey or... Oh, I am definitely still on a journey and I don't ever want to arrive because I I know me. And if, if I were to arrive at, you know, a place or whatever the goal would be, I don't even know. I'm just taking it a day at a time. But if I were to arrive, I would for sure be cocky about it. (laughs) That's dangerous (laughs) for me. I would be like, uh, I don't know. I've arrived. I don't know. Uh, So I for sure would. That would be just the biggest ego trip, I believe, and I don't care to. I, 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 I don't. I don't mean arrived as in like you've accomplished so much, or mm-hmm. I, I didn't mean it in that way. I just meant like okay. learning to love yourself because yeah, yeah. it seems like a lot of this stuff that we all experience, whatever your story is, comes from a, a feeling of unworthiness or not good enough or not enough. For sure. And so I just wondered if if you're. If you've been finding some, you know, like learning to love yourself and all this. I I have been learning to love myself. And I've also been learning to allow myself to be loved. Growing up, I always knew about God. My grandma was a devout Methodist Christian, stayed at the church five days a week, uh, worked, at, you know, worked at the church, volunteered. Uh, the whole thing was the church her whole life. And so I knew. And I knew her life, the way she lived her life didn't look anything like ours. The difference, as I saw it anyway, was God. The absence of God in my life and the presence of God in her life. And that's what I interpreted as the difference. And I knew, I always knew that was the answer, but I didn't know in here, like in my heart, that that was the answer. I didn't know how to translate that belief in my mind that God is the answer for me. I didn't know how to translate that into daily life. And I learned that in recovery. The recovery program I got on board with initially and still to this day is designed to get to a relationship with your higher power is what it's called. So that for me is God and specifically Jesus Christ. I couldn't get on board and what I found out through just a lot of time spent on myself was that one of my barriers to having a relationship 
with God was that father, that he's a father figure, a father figure that I've never had. And I did not know how to be loved by a, by a father. And it has been the most epic journey of my life to realize a father's love, not, not tangible per se, but intangible that I don't know how to describe it. And that's the good stuff, the stuff you don't know how to describe, right? So allowing myself to be loved, knowing that all the things that I heard about God my whole life from my grandmother, that that was for me, that that love, you know, that song that we sang in Sunday school, Jesus loves me. That was for me. Right. And And he loves you unconditionally. Unconditionally. Yeah. I had never been loved like that before. And so I didn't almost didn't believe that it was real. But I mean, look at my life. Look at what has happened. I have been rescued. That's nothing but unconditional love. You've been on an amazing journey. That's for sure. It's been a wild one. I just, I still can't believe that I'm here. I can't believe that I'm here, that I, I reached out and I begged him to rescue me and he did. Yeah. You've overcome so much. It's truly an amazing story. It really is. is. It is. So how do you foster that relationship? Do you read the word a lot? Do you pray? I mean, I'm just curious. I pray a lot. I wish I was better about reading the, the Bible than I am. I just, I have different views about things. I, I don't know. I haven't gotten there yet to where I'm just, at one point I, I read the Bible daily and again, it's a journey, you know, Absolutely. but I talk to him all the time. I do not go to church. Uh, he dwells within you. So yes, he's, <laughs> he, he dwells within me. Um, I prefer to do the work of loving people instead of showing up at the building you know, to talk about how we love the people. I, I want to go do the love. I let him guide me as, as much as I am cognitively aware of anyway. So, well, it's an amazing journey and you're an amazing person. <laughs> you really are to Thank overcome you. everything you've overcome and Thank you. dedicate your life to helping other people. I, I don't think there's anything better than that. I really don't. I can't but, imagine doing anything else. <laughs> I say that, but I, I remember very specifically building transmissions. So I can understand that. Yeah. If there's someone out there listening who's struggling mm-hmm. that would want to get in touch with you, is there any way that they can reach you? Yes. So uh, my email address is harmless.rn at gmail.com. That's H-A-R-M-L-E-S-S dot rn at gmail.com and that is the best way to get in touch with me i'm willing to help whoever i believe that if somebody comes my way there's a reason and that's how i think that's awesome well i'm very honored that you came on the show and i'm like i said i'm amazed at your story and that you're where you're at today that's just astounding thank you thanks for having me oh yeah absolutely As we wrap up today's episode, I hope Melanie sharing her story helped you in some way. 
I thought it was very insightful that she felt one of her biggest gifts was her compassion towards others, wherever they are in their path in life. And looking back, she realizes that the fact that she went through all of that pain allows her to now help comfort others. There was a reason for all of her pain, in other words, and she now uses her pain and her experiences to come to the aid of other people. I think Melanie's gift of compassion is meant to allow her to understand and help other people on their journeys. But I think a gift that she is getting in the midst of all of this for herself, perhaps, is the gift of learning to love herself unconditionally, as God loves her unconditionally. She has definitely found meaning and joy in giving others hope. And after all, isn't hope one of the greatest gifts we could possibly have? I think it is. As Melanie mentioned, you can contact her for help at harmless.rn at gmail.com, and I will make sure that her email is in the show notes. I hope this episode helps at least one person. And with that, I hope you have a blessed week, my friend. Thank you for listening to The Beauty in the Mess. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite pod player. If you have any questions or comments, any topic ideas you would like to hear about, or you think you would be a great guest on the show, you can reach me directly at thebeautyinthemess.com. Thanks for listening.